and turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Not doing two chapters today, not even a long chapter, so that doesn't mean anything. All right, John chapter 17. You know, we know that prayer was a very important part of Jesus's ministry. Um, many times we see Jesus stepping aside to take some time in prayer or even sometimes kind of disappearing from even his disciples to take that time uh, and spend with the Lord, getting up early before anyone else would arise. Uh, but interestingly enough, we don't have any other long prayers of Jesus besides this one here in John chapter 17. We have the disciples' prayer, the, the Lord's prayer as we know it, our Father who art in heaven, Matthew chapter 6. Um, and, and everybody does call it the Lord's prayer, but Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. It was more like a model prayer. Pray in this manner, our Father who is in heaven. And so what we have in John 17 is a kind of a peek into Jesus' prayer life that without this, we wouldn't really know how he prayed. How did he speak to the Father? How did he, how, what did he form as his requests? And how, what did he say to the Lord? We wouldn't know that otherwise. Um, but this is uh, what I would consider the true Lord's Prayer. And in this passage, we will be able to see how Jesus prayed and specifically what he wanted for his disciples, those then and even us now. And so the sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus was primarily concerned with God's glory which is demonstrated to us in his plan of salvation. So that's what we're going to be seeing as we go through this. And so I want to read to you John chapter 17, starting in verse 1, uh, only 26 verses. So we'll go through that. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see me or to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, so this kind of breaks up into three different parts. Jesus prays for himself, and then Jesus prays for his current disciples, the, the 11 that are remaining, and then Jesus turns and prays for even us today. Um, and, and so to me, that's very interesting just to, to say that and to think about it, that on the night before Jesus was crucified, of all the things that he could be really worried about, he's really concerned about his disciples. And he's concerned about the mission that he was sent on, that it continues through these 11 and even further down the line, even to us today. So what we know is that Jesus finished teaching about the vine and, and challenging his disciples and things like that. Uh, and that Jesus pretty much just stopped and prayed aloud. Some people want to say that Jesus was in the temple and that this was a priestly prayer that he was praying as if over himself as a sacrifice. Um, but it's very unlikely, one, that Jesus was in the temple because this is after the, the evening supper, and so it would have been dark. And even though they opened up the temple and, and allowed things, Jesus wasn't a priest. Jesus, God on the earth, was not allowed deep into the temple. The court of Israel was the deepest Jesus could go into the temple. Think about that for a minute. They wouldn't have let Jesus go into the Holy of Holies, even though he is the Holy of Holies. Um, so anyway... Probably he wasn't at the temple. Most likely, wherever he stopped to teach about the vine and the other things that we covered last week, he probably just led them in prayer right there. And so um, it's important that we notice that here, Jesus is not just teaching his disciples to pray. He's leading them in prayer. This is a prayer service or a time of prayer that he's leading his disciples into. So let's first notice that for Jesus, God is not some faraway ruler but rather his own father. He calls him father. Father, the hour has come. He's not, you know, it's, it, there's not a distance. There's not a gulf between Jesus and God. 
And, you know, prayers sometimes are that. Sometimes we do recognize the majesty of God, the otherness of God. We recognize that God is holy and, and, and high and lifted up, and we are lowly, like when, you know, uh, different people have seen God or seen some glimpse of God, and they have been so humbled. Well, yes, that, that is sometimes the case. But for Jesus in this moment, when he needed the Father the most, he was near to God. And I think that's important for us to recognize that, that we can have that same relationship. Jesus talks about the glory that I had, I've given to them. That relationship that Jesus had with the Father, we can have that closeness. We can have that same intimacy in our relationship. So Jesus talks about this hour, and he's been talking about this hour throughout his ministry. From, from the miracle at Cana, when he tells his mother, my hour's not yet come, well, the hour's now here. This hour that he's been talking about has come and it's time for him to be glorified. Now, what does that mean? So the glorification of Jesus is his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That's what the glorification of Jesus is. So it, it is not some abstract thing where all of a sudden he begins to glow or people recognize him for who he is. It is the mission that he was sent. When he completes that mission, he is glorified. So that's, that's what it is. So Jesus is glorified by his suffering, but also by the work of the ministry. And so when we think about what Jesus says a little bit later, that they would have the same glory, how are we going to receive glory? How, how are we going to be glorified? Well, it's not by people putting our names in lights, and it's certainly not by people elevating us and thinking highly of us, because that was never Jesus's life, and so it's not going to be our life. Where we're going to be glorified is when we sacrifice our lives for God, when we minister according to God's plan, and even sometimes when we suffer because of the cause of Christ, that's when we'll be glorified. That's when we will receive that glorification, and it will not be from man, it will be from God. So God is glorified in this because the world finally sees what a great love he has for us all. This is how God's glory is revealed to us. This is not the extent of God's glory, and that needs to be made clear, but it is the part that we can see and understand for ourselves. There are parts of the glory of God that we will not be able to grasp with human mortal minds. We just can't. But what we can see is a God who, for whatever reason, chose to make this world and chose to make us knowing that we would fall into sin. God wasn't surprised when Adam and Eve fell into sin. He's not been surprised by any of the things that, that the children of Israel have done. He's not been surprised by anything that you or I have done. God doesn't deal in surprises, right? He knew what was going to happen, but he still loved. And he showed such great love. The kind of love that God has is the kind of love that says, I'm going to send my son to die so that these people might be saved. So, when we say God is the, the center of the universe, he is the only one deserving of worship and praise, that God has done all these things for his own glory, it might sound selfish until you recognize the fact that God didn't need to do any of this. Everything that he has done, the extension of his love to mankind has been out of his love. And it makes him worthy and deserving of our praise, makes him worthy and deserving of our worship. He alone is glorious and deserving of being glorified. So this plan that God has is to give eternal life to the ones the Father has given to the Son. Jesus is very careful with his language here. He says, the ones you gave me, I have protected, and they are yours, and they are mine, and then there will be more that are given. And so we understand, and this is something we've got to look at, we understand that there are people 
that God has saved. And there are people that God has not saved. Now, is that God's choice or is that man's choice? I believe the Bible says yes. I believe that, that those that are being saved chose to follow Jesus Christ as Savior. And God has chosen them. And then the people that are not being saved have chosen to reject Jesus. And God has chosen not to save them. It's just not, it's, it's not a neat thing. It's not a thing that we can say, okay, so God decides who gets saved and who is condemned. Predestination. That's kind of that doctrine out there that a lot of Baptists aren't super comfortable with. But what, at the same time, we see that people make choices and we see that God makes choices. And so what we have to understand is that there is free will and there is the sovereignty of God together. And so Jesus speaks to the fact that God gave him these disciples and he is taking care of them and he has shepherded them through his ministry. He has poured the truth into them and that truth has now cleansed them and prepared them for their own ministry that would be like his. So all along, Jesus has been explaining that he is the key to salvation. He is the key to eternal life. He has said that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He has said that he is the door. He has made it clear that there is no other way to come to God except through him, except through Jesus Christ. So when we know Jesus, he reveals the Father to us, and we have eternal life. He makes that clear as well, that they may know that they may have eternal life and what is eternal life but knowing God that is that is what eternal life is for us and so when he's talking to his opponents before we got into the kind of the final chapters when he's talking to his opponents he says you should know the father because you know me Jesus was revealing the father that was his work that was his ministry was to introduce people to God Jesus is the exact representation of God God said let me send my son so that people will know me. And so that's what the point of, of Jesus' ministry was, was to introduce people to God so that they could be saved. That is also the point of our ministry, that we can introduce people into Jesus, and so then Jesus could introduce them to God so that they can be saved. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, yes, we do that in diverse ways, and we have all kinds of different you know, methods to go about that, but that is what we're supposed to be doing. So, Jesus' ministry on earth was neither primarily about teaching or miracles. It was about revealing the Father to his followers. So, Jesus did a whole bunch of teaching. He did a whole bunch of miracles. A lot of them didn't even get recorded. We know that Jesus was a very busy person while he was on this earth, especially during that three and a half years of his ministry. But the main mission that he had, although people were healed, people learned about the Father and learned about heaven and learned about a lot of things, the main mission was to introduce the Father to those 12 men. That was the main mission that Jesus had because then they would carry that, that lesson, they would carry that mission out to the rest of the world. That was the whole purpose and point behind what Jesus was here to do. So the disciples, they finally understood that Jesus came directly from God. They finally figured that out. Oh, so we know that you came from God. Remember in that last passage, we know you came from God, so everything you say is, is directly from Him. So they finally figured that out and has revealed the Father to them. So it was time for Jesus to return to the Father and take up the glory that He had laid down for the sake of the gospel. He says, I, I, I laid this down, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back for my glory, to come back to receive my glory. There are people that want to say that Jesus wasn't God while He was on this earth. They might even point to a passage like this or one in Philippians, but Jesus was most certainly God on this earth. But his glory had to be put aside. 
for him to come to this earth, to take on the form of a man. He had to put it aside for a time period so that he could come and be with us. And you say, well, why is that? Well, mankind can't receive the glory of God. We cannot receive the full glory of God. Remember some of the stories that, that we talk about. Moses, when he went up to receive the law and God passed before him, Moses was hiding in the cleft of the rock and his face was radiating the residual glory of God and the people asked him to wear a veil. People can't take the glory of God. Isaiah, same deal. He had to fall down. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. When he saw the glory of God, look at John in Revelation. Same story. John couldn't take the glory of God either. We can't take the glory of God. And so Jesus lays off that glory, and I wish I could explain it more, but I can't take it either. And so, so he lays off this glory, and he becomes a man. He comes to earth. Yes, he is still fully God, but he is also fully man. There is no part of Jesus that wasn't man, and there's no part of Jesus that wasn't God. And so he lives this holy, humble life, pays the price for our sins, is glorified, lifts up the Father, teaches his disciples how to know the Father, and then he ascends into heaven, receives his glory. So again, you know, then the Father bestowed on him a name that is above every name, if you'll remember that from Philippians. That is what happens. Jesus is glorified again, lifted up again. So the disciples finally understand that, so it's time for Jesus to return to the Father. So even Jesus' prayer for himself is not selfish. He is not saying, Lord, give me strength, help me get through this. That is not really what he's talking about here. He is seeking the completion of the Father's plan in his human life so that he can be with the Father eternally. There is no point where Jesus is showing any kind of weakness or any kind of selfishness. He is still looking to please the Father even on his last night, his last evening before the crucifixion. So then we look at the part where Jesus begins to pray for the disciples. Now, this, this really picks up in verse 9. Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. He's very specifically praying for the 11 that remain that were following him this whole time. He does say that he's not praying for the world. He's praying for these 11 people. So we know that Jesus loves the world. Um, and in a few hours, because in a few hours he would die so that people from out of the world could be saved. But in this moment, his heart is for this small group of followers. That's who he's looking to help right now, is just that small group of followers. That's who he's praying for. Does God love the world? Yes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have evidence of that. But what we also know is that in this moment, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And that's an important thing, because Jesus' prayer has power, and he is pouring that power into his disciples so that they can do an amazing thing. So what do they do? Well, in one generation, they at least spread the gospel over the entire Roman Empire, which was a huge place. A huge place. Travel was difficult. It was dangerous. Lives are short. People get sick. People die. But yet, in one generation, they spread the gospel over the entire Roman Empire, and possibly more than that. And so when we think about what they did... Yes, they needed prayer. Absolutely, they needed God's influence in their lives. So these men, they have been a shared possession of the Father and the Son. And they have been loved and they have been protected. You know, when we look at the people that were interacting with Jesus and their responses, some people believed in Jesus and some people rejected him. You know, what's, what's, what's the difference there? Well, some people they had their eyes open to the truth. 
They could see who Jesus was. They could hear what he was saying. They knew that he was from the Lord. But other people were closed off. And all they wanted to, to, to do was basically advance what benefited them. Where does that come from? Where does that kind of selfishness come from? Well, Jesus actually points out the fact that, that he wants God to protect them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. So what Jesus is helping us to see here is that we have an active enemy in this world, and God is protecting us from that enemy. And so why did the disciples become so receptive to Jesus? Why is it that when he walks up to them and says, follow me, they immediately drop whatever they're doing and follow him? Because God was protecting them. He was helping them to be obedient. He was helping them not to fall under the influence of the evil one, to fall under the influence of Satan. Why, is, why, why are Christians going astray? Because they fall under the influence of Satan. Why are churches worried about the wrong things in this most crucial time? Because they've fallen under the influence of Satan. He is active. And he is trying. And y'all, this last year and nine months, it seems like he has just really dialed up the pressure to lead people astray, to confuse people, to create so much other drama that people can't pay attention to what God himself wants us to do. And you know what's really interesting? This hasn't changed. I don't know if y'all have phones. Most of us do. And you know what happens every month or two months or whatever? You get this little notification. Your phone needs to update. And it changes. And then they hide all the buttons that you're used to using. And you have to go back and look for them and find that. And everything looks a little different. And then you figure it out and you can kind of go with it. But normally there's some kind of change. There's been no update. There's not been any update in the last 2,000 years. What we have has not changed. The Word of God remains. So does the church need to change? No, we've done too much changing. We've done too much of the accepting. We've done too much of the, the, the going the way of the world. We, we have already compromised too much. What we need to do is preach Jesus and Him crucified. Remember, Paul says he shows up to a church and... And, 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 and we know that Paul was, was an educated man. He could have argued, you know, used rhetoric, used philosophy. He could have done all kinds of things. He said, I showed up and, and I preached Christ and Him crucified. That's important because that's all we need to do. Boy, can we complicate things. We, we can make things so strange and so weird that people don't even know what we're really saying anymore. You know why people think that they're supposed to come to church and have a good time? Because we've confused them and made them think that's what they're supposed to do. You know how people think that when they come to church and, and, and they participate in church, then that is the, the sum total of their Christian experience? Because we've confused them and made them think that it is. Should you come to church? Absolutely. But you should serve Jesus Monday through Sunday. And, and we, we haven't made, made that clear. We haven't helped people to understand that. We haven't helped them to understand that. And Jesus was praying that his disciples would not be influenced by the evil one. You know, the world will always tr hate the true disciples of Jesus. But we must remain and work until we are called home. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. If we do return to the Word of God, proclaim the truth of Scripture, and we don't compromise and, and, and we continue to, to do what God has called us to do, they're going to hate us. They're going to hate us. That's okay, though. Because God loves us, God is protecting us, and He will keep us until it is our time to go back home. Jesus even mentions Judas in this prayer. And you know, the interesting thing is, 
Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him, and he could be bitter about that. He, he, he could have been upset, but that's not what, what is going on here. He says, I've kept all of them except the one, and it was prophesied in Scripture that, that he would turn away. So Judas, he never surrendered to Christ. He had his own agenda the whole time, and he was lost because of his choices. Let's make that clear. Now, yes, there was a prophecy. So in Psalm 109, it speaks of him. It talks about him being at the right hand, but yet accusing and it talks about somebody taking over his office or taking over his position. So Peter explains that in Acts chapter 1. Uh, Peter actually explains that passage and says, that's talking about Judas, and so we've got to elect somebody new. So all of that's kind of laid out in Scripture for us to see and understand that it was a prophecy, but at the same time, Judas made his choices, and he turned away, and we never, ever want to be like Judas. Um, but Jesus said that those that were faithful, that followed him, he kept them. He protected them. He shepherded them all the way to the end. So the true disciples of Jesus are to be cleansed by his word, which is the truth. Now think about this for a minute. One of the largest categories of books that are written is self-help. There's so much out there. People telling you how to exercise and people telling you how to live and how to, how to lead. That's a big one. A lot of leadership books are out there. People telling you how to, how to be you know, professional or how to manage your time. Or all these kinds of things are out there telling us how to be, how to be a better person, how to make ourselves into something better. Well, Jesus says that we are to be sanctified by his word. We don't really need the self-help section in the library. We just need the Bible. We need to read the Word of God and let the Word of God cleanse us. It will hold us accountable. It will challenge us. You know, the thing is, books have to sell. And so they're not going to tell us that we are sinful, that we're rebellious. Books are not going to tell us that deep down we're really bad people and we need to be saved and changed that we need to be completely cleaned out and made into a whole different person. Books aren't going to tell you that because you wouldn't want to read that. But the Bible will. Because the Bible is truth, and it doesn't have to compromise for what sells. It wasn't intended or designed to sell. It was tended, intended and designed to cleanse. And so the Word of God cleanses us. So Jesus was sent into this world to proclaim the truth and to show the way to the Father. And as Jesus is leaving, he sends his disciples out to do the same mission. So why do you study the life of Jesus? Because that's the model of how we're supposed to minister. Teaching people when that's appropriate. Ministering to people. Helping people. Maybe we can't walk on water or command the rain to stop. But what we can do is bring people to the Lord where they can make those requests. Bring people to the Lord where they can pray and they can meet him and they can be changed. So that ministry of introducing people to the Father, that is our ministry as well. And so Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I'm sending them. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. So the desire of Jesus' heart for his disciples was that they would be cleansed by the truth and protected from the lies and the temptations of Satan. That's what he's praying for his disciples, those 11 men. But then he expands it. He says in verse 20, he says, I'm not just praying for them, but for those that would come after them. So at the end of his prayer, Jesus begins to pray for us, the Christians who would be saved through the ministry of the apostles. And that is generation after generation after generation. So Jesus was literally praying for us the night before he was crucified. So previously, Jesus said that the world will know that we are his 
because of our love for one another. He says, the new commandment I give you, that you love one another. If you love one another, the world will know that you are mine. So that is a way that Christians can be identified. But look at something else. Here, Jesus reveals that the world will also recognize our relationship to the Father by our unity. So what he's saying is, is that when you know, Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus and his disciples were one. When we are one with God and one with each other, then the world will recognize us. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to kind of make a joke, but at the same time say the truth, and then I forgot to read it off the script when I said that, you know, you never heard people say, well, I don't want to go to that church because they love each other too much. Another thing you've probably never heard anybody say, when you've invited people to church and say, hey, I've got this church, I, I love this church, I want you to come to be a part of this church, and they say, no, I've heard about that church. They get along too well. I'm never, I'm never going to a church that gets along as well as they do. You never hear that. Like, that's not the excuse that people have. And you know why? Because churches don't always get along. So it's not just about the individual churches. It's not just about church fights like this, but it's also the fact that we can't agree on anything. Drive through any downtown in any small town in America. What are you going to see? Churches. Not the church. Churches. Baptists and Methodists, Presbyterians the Pentecostals, the Lutherans, the Catholics, you'll find all kinds of churches out there. Why is that? Do we need that many churches for, you know, up one block in downtown? No, we can't agree. We're not unified. We can't get along. So what is the answer? Compromise? Or is it actually dealing with the questions that we have about Scripture? We must be of one mind. We must be one body. No wonder the church doesn't want anything to do with us. We can't even agree with each other. We don't want anything to do with the others. How much more can it be just repulsive to the world? Well, they, they literally have two churches side by side. They can't even get along with each other, and they want us to come in and get along with them? There is one Jesus, one Word, one Spirit. I know I'm not exactly quoting Scripture, but it's pretty close. There is one oneness we cannot be divided and still stand for christ the way that we need to if we are unified in love and action the world will not be able to doubt the work of jesus you realize how crucial it is that we as christians love one another work together and are united we are the testimony about jesus when jesus said you will be my witnesses Yes, he definitely meant that we're going to go out and tell people about him, but he also meant that our lives and the way that the church functions in this world will proclaim Jesus to the world. What if all people had to know about Jesus was the way that the church works? Would that be enough? What the church is doing. Could the world know that God loves us through the ministries that we have in church? Could the world find out about the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Could the world find out all of those things based on the ministries of the church? It should be so. It should be so. And I would say that Jesus is praying that it be so. That's what he's praying. He is praying that the world can see him through the work of the church. Now, Jesus is aware that we will suffer at the hands of the wicked in this world. But he also prays that we can eventually dwell in the presence of the Father. So he doesn't say, Lord, don't let them suffer. He knows that we'll suffer. 
But he is saying, it is my desire that they can be with me too. And so Jesus is praying for us that at the end of our suffering, at the end of our journey, we can be with him. You know, there is a little bit of a tone of sadness here when Jesus prays uh, and he speaks about the fact that the world doesn't know the Father. But there is also hope for the future disciples that they will walk in the same love that was shared by the Father and the Son. And that maybe that love will demonstrate to the rest of the world how they are supposed to live as well. So Jesus has provided a simple message for us. We are to believe Him, love Him, obey Him, and love each other. It's not complicated, but boy, it's not easy either. It is not easy to be all of those things and to do all of those things at once. Aren't there times where, although we know Scripture is true, we let doubts creep in? And sometimes it's not we let. They, they flood into our lives. I was talking with a friend yesterday, and he, he told me that his step-uncle had died. And I told him I was sorry about that. And he says, well, I didn't know him that well because he, he has moved away from home. But that would mean that his grandfather has lost three children to children-in-laws. So like five people in a year that he's lost. And what is, what is our response to that? You know, how, why would God let that happen to one family? That, that's immediately, that's, that's doubt. And I'm sure you're sitting in here thinking, well, I can name, I can name a few right now that, that, that we've lost, that we've seen, whether it be somebody that you work with or somebody that you know or some family that you've watched go through a terrible and a hard time, doubts may come. So Jesus didn't say that it's easy to always believe him, but it is a command. It is a command for us. But we also have to love Him. We have to love God. We have to obey Him. If you love me, you will obey my commandments, Jesus says. And then we have to love each other because that's how we're known. So as we live our lives in this world, we should remember that Jesus loved us enough to pray for us right before His own death. This mission that you and I are on, this mission that admittedly sometimes we're not really on or focused on, Jesus thought it was important enough to pray the night before he died for this very mission. And maybe this is something we all need to hear this morning as well. Remember, Jesus is not sitting in judgment of you right now. If you've been listening to this and you've been saying, you know what, I haven't been on mission. Jesus is not judging you. He is praying for you to have joy in him. What's the real joy for a Christian? Well, once you experience it, you know that the real joy for a Christian is being obedient to God and seeing Him pour out His blessings in that situation, in that circumstance. It's not always what we want it to be. It may not be that Hollywood ending, but when God blesses, we know it. We know it. And so if you're sitting here this morning saying, you know what, I haven't really been what God wants me to be, Jesus isn't judging you at this time. What he's doing is praying for you. And he's praying that you can have joy. That you can have joy in him by obeying him and experiencing that life in him. So let's wrap this up. Jesus' prayer was for the glory of God to be revealed through his suffering. 
So that's the main part. That's the, the main idea is that what Jesus is going to do is going to reveal God to the world, reveal God's plan of salvation. That's the main part of this. But he was also concerned about his disciples, present and future, as he approaches the cross. He was concerned about us. He was thinking about what we would be doing, what our ministry would be, and how our ministry would continue the ministry that he had started. So we can honor Jesus and the Father through our faith, our love, our obedience, and our unity. Have we ever thought about the fact that being divided, Christian against Christian, dishonors God? It does. If Christians cannot come to the Word, see what God says, and let that settle it, then we dishonor God. When we don't love one another, we dishonor God. We must live a life that honors Him. And that isn't just about you know, reading our Bibles and praying and going to church every Sunday. That's about having those hard conversations, getting unified and moving forward for the gospel, serving him in a real and tangible way. When God said, I love you, his son Jesus died on the cross to show that. And so if we're going to say, God, I love you, that means that we're going to have to give our lives to serve him. Practically, we're going to have to do things for the rest of our life serving him. Now that's not works-based salvation, but that is salvation that actually gets to work. And that's what Jesus taught. Jesus talked about us continuing that mission. It was so important that he spent some of his last hours before his crucifixion praying that that mission would go well for us. And so let us be sure that we are taking it as seriously as he did. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much once again, for this time to gather together. And Lord, as we read Jesus' prayer, it warms our hearts to know how much He loved us, how He cared for us and thought about us even in those final days. But it also greatly challenges us to be about His business. At 12 years old, He was already in the temple teaching, being about your business. And we now need to be about the work that you have left for us. The world is no better or worse now than it was when Jesus was here. They just need to hear from you. They need to see the lives of people that are surrendered to you. They need to see the difference between us and the rest of the world. And they need to know that you love them. We can show them that. Pray that we will. Pray that we'll commit to doing that. As we go out of this place, remind us that Jesus has prayed for us. So often we comfort each other with those words, well, I'll pray for you. Remind us that Jesus himself prayed for us on the night before his crucifixion. He loves us. He gave himself up for us. And He has given us a mission. And I pray that we will be faithful to fulfill that mission. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.